Hello, it's Jack Tutor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Philip Golub, a pianist and composer based in New York. Philip's debut solo album, Filters, is out now on Greyfade for solo piano loops each eight minutes a piece but obviously the duration is kind of elastic there are versions of these pieces that have been performed live that are an hour a piece and what really comes up in this album is the sound of repetition as played by a performer rather than being executed mechanically you can hear Philip reaching the same gestures again and again and how he navigates that feeling of familiarity that can become quite uncanny when you do something over and over again. There are these pauses which expand and contract. In fact, those pauses feel like they really hold the weight of repetition and its effects upon a performer. And obviously as a listener as well, there's so much to pull apart here. I liked throwing over a few questions to Philip about my own experience of repetition on this record. Because as I say, actually, during our conversation, it sort of feels like a weird deja vu. It's hard to pick up the start and the the end of each loop, but you kind of know what chord is coming. And it feels like the chord you always knew would come, even if you can't cut out the loop in your head and define it it's so thoughtfully done i love this record and philip brought some really great records to talk about too and had a ton of anecdotes and insights into each of these love digging into these with philip so yeah i hope you're enjoying the podcast i hope you enjoy this episode and if you want to support it then you can do over at coffee ko-fi.com forward slash crucial listening You can make a monthly donation or one-off, any amount you please. And that helps support the costs associated with keeping the podcast ticking. Otherwise, feel free to rate and review. Or just simply listen and enjoy. That's obviously totally cool. Thank you so much as always. Please enjoy this conversation with Philip Golub on Crucial Listening. Hello, Philip. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the podcast. So we're going to talk about your three important albums. But prior to that, I want to talk about your new album on Greyfade, which is titled Filters. And first, I want to dig into your own history when it comes to playing these pieces or identifying the fact that you you were going to end up with some pieces that are essentially loops, because I understand that wasn't necessarily the original intention when you had the material in a kind of nascent state. So how did you end up determining that 
you were going to end up writing a record of looped pieces. What did that moment look like? Yeah. Well, so I'm a, I'm a slow composer, meaning I often, um, I often spend a lot of time with my material before I know what it's going to be. And I'll sit there at the piano, uh, sometimes just playing a couple bars that I've written for, for days until I know, until I know, you know, where it's going or what, what it means, what it's about. Um, two kind of precedents for this, which make me feel like I'm not losing my mind. Um, one is that I, I heard Thelonious Monk used to do that a lot. <laughs> right. Uh, he would, uh, he would, he would literally just play his, his own compositions over and over again. Um, and the other one is Stevie Wonder, who I, I heard someone tell me once that he would literally play a chord and uh, wait until the next chord came to his mind. Oh, lovely. Um, okay. Just sort of keep playing the chord until he knew the next chord in the piece. So not, not to claim uh, any, any, anything uh, like that. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I'm a bit like that too, and that I'll sit with my material. So, so at the time, I was, I was working with um, basically this kind of harmonic exercise i was trying to sort of sh get some new some new sounds um out of the piano and i mean i can go into that later if, if you want but i was messing around with this thing I, I wrote a couple of uh phrases and i was playing them over and over again and, and then i tried playing them i tried improvising on them i got together with a friend who plays trumpet and we tried playing through them I tried a bunch of different things, and the more I played it, the more I realized that I think I was playing the piece this mm. whole time, which hadn't happened to me before. Um, I'm not a composer who, I mean, I, I use repetition and uh, even loops a lot in my in my music, but I've I've never. This is the only work I've done that really is head on about that. That mm. is, you know, usually there, there's, a, I might use some repetition or I might use loops, but it, it's in the context of a lot more things going on. So that was kind of a surprise. I almost surprised myself. You know, I'm, I'm not someone who's like deep into process music um, necessarily. I mean, I appreciate and like a lot of it, but that's not really like, quote unquote, my thing. But yeah, it just kind of hit me that that was the way that this material should exist. Um, so that was the first loop, and then I basically wrote four more to, you know, I realized like I could have a real sort of set of, of things here that could be a record, that could be a live performance experience. Um, and so that's kind of where the idea came from. And the first time I performed it live was actually on my, my master's recital, of all things. Oh, wow. Uh, which which uh, it wasn't actually on the program but what I did is I, I started playing the first loop 20 minutes before the curtain 20 minutes before the, the set time of the concert and as people were coming into the hall I was already there playing the first loop and I sort of blended that into the first piece on the on the program and then um, not too long later the, the, the pandemic hit and um, I, the next time I was able to perform them was I, I basically got this uh, New York City pandemic grant that they that they were giving to some artists to do live performance in 2021 and i got together 13 musicians and we were able to go in this um beautiful very large gothic church in downtown brooklyn and i had the musicians spaced out around the whole um the whole area of the church and they basically had the score and had the option to double any sort of internal or out you know exterior line in the music 
um, kind of as they saw fit. And so you had this sort of kaleidoscopic, constantly changing orchestration um, of the music. Uh, and we did that for three or four hours. Um, you know, we did each loop oh, for about wow. four, f- did each loop for about forty minutes. And um, so, yeah, I think the music can exist in a number of different settings and ways as a, as a live performing experience. You know, it can be a solo piano thing. It can be a very large ensemble thing. It could be a, a couple of musicians and me. And I kind of like that about it. But I do think the sort of most pure representation of the music is just as you know, me and the piano. Uh, just a kind of this this intimate experience, which I was uh, you know lucky to to be able to record in 2019, and then um, found my way to Greyfade, who was uh, into it enough to want to want to put it out. So that's how we got to where we are. Amazing. I wanted to ask actually about those other iterations that you've had of say performing the piece, as you say, like a prelude to the actual program, or also with other musicians, and then you noted the fact that. The piano only version is kind of the most pure iteration of I guess what you're grasping at with with filters so I'm curious as to how those other contexts informed how you think about the pieces because having it as something as people are coming in I guess has a, a whole different weight in terms of the attention that people are, are, are applying to it as they're coming in or I guess the role that the piece plays in your mind you know, you know it's kind of this state of expectation before the actual thing comes in. I mean, yeah, what what was it like to take this idea and these loops to different contexts? And did that inform how you think about these pieces and how you relate to them? Yeah, I mean, well, on the one hand, I'll just sort of admit that uh, I I was nervous for my recital and uh, being able to have 20 minutes of time with the piano uh, (laughs) (laughs) before actually was a nice way to settle into it and uh, sort of have a soft landing into the the start of the the program but uh, so there was a kind of (laughs) there was that element Uh, beyond that this what I'm going to say applies to the recording as well that I don't think there's one sort of setting uh, or mode of listening for Mm. this music I think you can listen very, very closely and intently, you know, with your eyes closed and the lights off and really sort of notice every difference of micro timing, every difference of voicing of each chord, really listen for, you know, the, the, the different sections of the, the repetition and, and how, how that's working, the changes in tempo, slight variations in tempo. You can, you can absolutely have a rewarding experience, uh, I, I hope, uh, with this music like that, and that's one intention. And then I think you can also have it on, I mean, dare I say, to do your homework or to, you know, sure. <laughs> wash, wash the dishes or, or, or go for a walk and appreciate the changing leaves of the autumn and, you know, whatever. Um, and so I, I think music, I think this music in particular, I mean, music in general, but in particular, this music uh, doesn't have one function mm. for us. And I think that, I think I've been able to write something that that's true for live performance as well. That performance I mentioned in the church last year uh, there were some audience members who came and stayed for hours and, you know, they had they were sort of looking down and, and really taking it in. And there were other people who wandered in off the street and stayed for 10, 15 minutes and went on with their day. Mm-hmm. And I'm totally, totally uh, into both of those uh, experiences. As, as long as the music has 
left a mark on someone in some way that it, it sort of changed the, the trajectory of their thoughts or their day or whatever. Um, I think it's done what, what music has, is supposed to do to us. And that'll be different things for different people. So I don't say that to avoid the question, but I, I really do think of the pieces in this way, which is, again, different from most of the things I write, which are perhaps... I don't know. Most of the things I write, it's a little more obvious what setting they're sort of designed for, or what sort of listening experience. And um, I, I do hope to write more things in the future that have this kind of like, you know, element to them that they can that they can exist in in many different settings. In terms of how the loops are written, one one thing I find really interesting is often when you listen to music which is overtly repetitious like this, you can very quickly kind of discern the start and end of the loop or how the loop is formed like you can kind of cut it out in your mind and say like that's the loop there's something very fluid about your loops where definitely there's always an element of doubt in my mind as to whether or not it is looping or you know and I get a kind of vague sensation that I know what's coming almost like a strange deja vu but not a intellectual acknowledgement of like okay this is the loop um which is very very cool and i wondered if any of that i don't know whether this is true for anyone else but me so it may be a dud question if so but no i've i've, I've heard that from from numerous people so i don't oh, i think it is yeah amazing. yeah okay cool so i'm wondering whether or not there's anything that you can kind of identify in terms of how the loops are constructed or played which might lend to that effect I think there's a couple of things. I mean, I, I can only guess, you know, especially yeah, an- sure. an analysis is only a uh, is, is only a guess when it comes to music and particularly about your own music. But I think one reason is that it's not a digital loop. You know, mm-hmm. it's not a, it's not a, or even an analog loop. It's not a tape loop. It's uh, me physically playing uh, the music again and again. So you really never are hearing the same sound waves looped. Uh, you're hearing the same music looped but I, I do think that that toys with your ears a bit because it never really does sound the same mm. um, literally I think more importantly than that on a basic level the each loop has an a section and a B section uh, which are all about they're usually a, a somewhere between 15 and 20 seconds each sort of a or B section mm. and then each loop has a form uh, you know, it might be A A B A B or something like that. Right. But right. particularly as the forms or as the loops go on, like the first loop is just A A B. So that one maybe it's easier to perceive the loop a little bit. But once we get into the later ones, the forms get a little bit more convoluted. So it's not such an obvious combination of A's and B's. Even though the overall thing does loop. The whole form of A A B A B or something like that might take two two or three minutes even, and at right, that point it's beyond right. it's beyond our um, our ability to perceive that as a as one loop. So you're never quite sure is it going to go back to that chord again, or is it going to go to that other chord that we did hear, but the last time we heard that chord was actually well, it was over a minute ago. You know, so <laughs> exactly, yeah. So that I think is part of it, and that was definitely intentional. And then I, I think the other reason is that. There is a, I mean, I'll, I'll, I don't mind giving away secrets or whatever. Um, 
and I think this was even written, has been written in some in some things about about the music. Um, basically, the way it's all constructed is there's um, this stream of music that happens on the on the outer limits in terms of register. So the lowest note and the highest note, which always sound together, and then there's um, three or four notes which happen um, usually at a different time in between the register of the lowest and highest notes, and those pitches in the middle are almost always a tri a simple triad you know, a c major triad a g minor triad every now and then a sus chord or a seventh chord but we're talking very simple chords but usually they don't share pitches with the outer notes so you have this that that sort of limitation on the pitch material it, it obviously allows for quite a, that's not such a limitation it allows for quite a range of 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 harmonic sounds but it is enough of a limitation that all the material sounds connected and shared and the same. Mm. So that when we get a new chord, I think we're in the same world the whole time. And it's I think that can add to the effect of where in the loop are we, you know, since uh, there's kind of a, a certain sameness to all the all the harmonic information. Lovely answer. That's really interesting. Um, I could obviously ask about this record for the entire time that we're due to talk but <laughs> i think people can people should absolutely go check it out i will put the links in the show notes so people can dive in as well and try the album in loads of different contexts and brew up all the same level of questions that i have too so thank you philip it's an awesome record amazing well thank you for the questions and if any of you out there have a have a, an idea of performance of these loops uh that you'd want to make happen please hit me up because uh i i'd actually love to take these these pieces on the road and 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 offer that experience to people in a live setting and i, I am hoping that the record leads to that uh in the future so Wicked. yeah nice so let's talk about your important records now so one question i like to start with is about how you thought about the word important when picking your three album so was there a way you understood important in order to pick the three records that you did well i tried not to overthink it but i did still think about it because <laughs> how can you not um i mean it kind of freaked me out when when you first sent it to me uh i don't know if anyone anyone's ever sort of given you that reaction before yeah. i'm yeah. sure it had yeah i'm sure they have i mean i think the reason for that is that like our taste in music seems so wrapped up in identity in the mm. modern age, or, or maybe not even modern age, maybe always, but certainly like, I don't know, since like popular mass pop culture was born, you know? Yeah, yeah <laughs> um, for sure. At least since the time Adorno was writing, like what you're into, like, seems to like matter. It seems to like say something about who you are and like what kind of person you are and and imply a lot of other things about you. So I, I've noticed people get really sort of like angsty about their music taste. Um, uh, and so um, it's hard to know whether important is wrapped up in that as well. Like if these are important to me, well, what does that say about me? And you start wondering what you're messaging about yourself and all, and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of acknowledged that when you, when you asked the question and, and, and then tried to put that aside and say, well, Okay, important must mean a few things. It, it must mean that something about this music has made me come back to it time and time again. So there's there's some things I really love, 
or I'm really inspired by, but I don't necessarily go back to it over and over again. So I could have defined important as, as you know, I, I take a lot of information from it for my own work or something. But in a way, I didn't think of that. I thought this is something that I, I actually, you know, when I'm driving my car, I put these records on. When mm. I'm when I'm cooking dinner, I put these records on. Like th- these are things I listen to a lot. But at the same time, there are things that kind of showed me something was possible that I didn't know was possible. They showed me a, a new way, uh, either a combination of elements or a certain, you know, technical prowess or whatever it is. They, they showed me that, wow, you could, you could do this. And whether I'll do that or something else, it just sort of is mastery of a certain level hmm. that, I, that I love. So th- those are at least some of the ways in which I was thinking of the word important when I picked these three. There's probably more to say, but... Um, I'll leave it at that for now. <laughs> nice. Okay, cool. So, which one do you want to talk about first? Oh, um, let's. How about the Michelle? The yeah, the, the yeah. Notre Dame. Yeah. Cool. So, oh gosh, I don't know the correct pronunciation of this. So, I don't know if you know any better, Philip. But oh, you uh, let's let's just avoid that one altogether. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Galam de Michaud, Mess de Notre Dame. Uh, I'll put the full title in the show notes so you can see it. So it's Marcel Perez with Ensemble Organum, right? The uh, particular rendition you picked. So yeah, give me a little introduction yes. as to why this one is important to you. So this is like um, the, the the Mass of Notre Dame is like one of the kind of pinnacle pieces of like of you know medieval music. But um, and I, and I love the piece as a piece, but it's this recording that. It really blew my mind when I when I first heard it. It's unlike any other recording you'll hear of, of this piece. So, you know, we have this kind of most medieval and Renaissance music, which I'll just as an aside say is, is kind of one one obsession of mine, um, hmm. as it is for many sort of weirdo composers. Uh, <laughs> most recordings of that music, and we're talking about a you know almost half a millennium period of time. <laughs> um, sounds the same in terms of the approach to performance and recording and the kind of model of the sound that we often get from i'm not going to name names but it's often this kind of english boys choir aesthetic Mm. very pure vibrato-less angelic voices you know the kind of uh not a chest voice you know not a raspy sound and I mean, it, it's that's an old tradition which does exist, but and so you know maybe we could maybe that makes sense to to to, to deal with sometimes. But a lot of this music far predates that tradition, and um, I think we lose a lot of interesting possibilities mm-hmm. when we limit ourselves to that that kind of sound. So this this uh, Marcel Perez and Ensemble Organum, they're they're kind of um, what they do is they. Um, they spend like a year with a with a small group of performers on a piece or more just diving into like producing a perfect recording of it and you know that that really shows in this recording and and he also picks a lot of singers from like like Corsican singers and singers from that part of the world who who basically they they bring in the theory that like this music existed in a context of the Mediterranean uh, not in a context of kind of northern Europe and what we think of as like the later sort of Reformation period. 
So they're using ornaments from the folk traditions of you know different Mediterranean musical traditions. Oh, cool! Um, not all the singers have the same tone production, so you have different you have different tones, uh, different sort of tone production on on the different parts, and this just produces a. You know, I, I am like in a complete wash when I'm when I'm listening to this music. Um, the combination of the timbres and the ornamentation and the counterpoint. Uh, is just mind blowing to me. Yeah, I mean, had, is this is this music that that you knew? And and I wonder how it struck you uh, hearing it. No, um, I'd never heard this piece before. I wasn't familiar. It's not a region of music that I have any experience in at all. But I found this totally astonishing. And what I found very interesting actually is I also checked out uh, briefly another version of the same piece. And I think I heard maybe some of the lack of ornamentation, the the kind of um, choir boy aesthetic that you talk about, which I think coming back again to this Marcel Perez one made it even more brighter because I think you realise the amount of pressure that's being applied by Perez and the singers on the material itself. I mean, I, I wonder if you can tell me actually because this is something I'm completely naive to. It sounds like that there was there's a lot of room for determining the outcome of the piece and you know how maybe it should sound which isn't present within the original material like well I, th I think that's okay I'll, I'll preface this by saying I'm, I'm not a music historian nor an expert in the medieval period at all but I do I do think that like we have to make assumptions to perform this music. There's no mm. manual that says this is how you're supposed to do things in 1360 or right, whenever. Sure. I mean, it's hard enough with things from last week, uh, <laughs> let alone things that are over, you know, nearly you know, over seven or 800 years old. Um, so yeah, there's no manual that says, here's all the things that aren't on the score, let alone the question of what the score even is. You know, so we have to make assumptions. And then the question is what assumptions are we making without thinking about them? And then what assumptions are we going to decide to make? And what I think Marcel Perez does is he makes quite unusual ones, at least for our time today. And I have no way of assessing the quote unquote historical validity of those, but yeah, I really sure. am not interested in those, in that question. If he wants to say that this music was happening in the French Italian border regions and that at the time puts it in the Mediterranean in the scope of the Mediterranean world where we're involved with you know the call to prayer and and and, and North Africa and and Corsica and Sardinia mm. and the, then so I don't care whether that's true or not <laughs> you know I care yeah. that it makes the most astonishing sonic result today um, and and that's that's much more interesting to me than the sort of validity of that I'm, I'm not even really sure how much he cares um, or no, not sure. he may but he may not and, but I know for my purposes as a, as a music listener and a, as a music creator that um, yeah I'm, I'm much interest, less interested in sort of authenticity or validity than I am in just well put together these things and, and if it somehow makes the most incredible thing then you've, you've found gold and stay with that mm -hmm. yeah I think I read one particular write-up which said it was a controversial rendition but I was like where's this argument happening I'd love to know like who's getting annoyed by right. by this piece <laughs> of music right um 
Do you remember how you first discovered it? Um, you know, I think I was uh, into. I, I was. It was a time in my life when I was sort of getting into Renaissance and medieval music. Was checking out different pieces, and if I'm not mistaken, I I just came across this recording on YouTube. Right. Um, and and I thought, well, well, this one's kind of different, <laughs> and I kept listening to it over and over again. And then eventually, I, you know, I was, who are these people? Who is this Marcel Perez guy? And I, you know, I bought the CD, and and I, I've actually now got a couple of his other recordings, which it's worth noting they don't all sound like this because, you know, he'll take a, another piece by Josquin from you know hundred years later or whatever or or whatever he's doing and and he picks different singers and there's a totally different thing he's going for uh, and again they spent like a year or more sort of living in the world of that piece to produce also an amazing recording but it's not as if they do take the approach on this piece that they that you know that they did and, and they apply that to, to everything else at all so it's really kind of a one-of-a-kind singular thing as at least in what I've heard Wow it's so exciting to even hear about knowing that each disc is, you know, the output of a year of research and collaborating with these various singers. That's so cool. Um, you referred to yourself as a, an obsessive of, say, medieval music. How has that ended up happening and, and why, do you think? Well, um, I mean, like I said before, a lot, of, a lot of composers, people who are into weird stuff, like old mu- very old music. Maybe it's just because we're weirdos and we like to be different. <laughs> uh, but I, I think, I mean, one exciting thing about that music is that it is is how much how much meaning it can make out of such a limited palette, um, out of you know such a such a small amount of information, and actually quite rigid rules of counterpoint, which did mm-hmm. evolve over time. But you know, when you think about it, or when you look at it from a sort of in the from the point of view of centuries, is pretty pretty consistent across the centuries, um, and yet and yet aesthetics changed. Composers, you know, were doing all these different things, were experimenting in all these different ways. So once you sort of get into that world, and you can, you know, not merely hear these sounds as well. That sounds like old music, but start to hear the differences between them. I think it's wonderfully rich in the way that you know contemporary music is, and so I think there's a sort of resonance there for sort of contemporary music folks. Another reason is that um, the way that Western music sort of came upon harmony and everything got very vertical. Um, And a lot of cool things happened with that, obviously. You know, I I love Schubert, I love Mahler, you know, whatever. Mm. But but this music is built with, truly with counterpoint. It's built horizontally. Mm. Um, So it's really line against line against line. And that puts us in a very different temporal space, I think, and and it makes the music flow in this wonderfully fluid way. Um, and you know, they, they, these composers played lots of games with things like imitation. So they'll have a set of notes appear in one voice, and then the same exact notes will appear in in another voice uh, a couple seconds later. Oh, cool, nice. And but then the the first voice has to do something while the second voice is imitating the first voice. So then you have to write something new against that, and then you might copy that later in the second voice. And so you get these wonderfully rich sort of intertextual 
you know, at least musically speaking, uh, things going on. Uh, so yeah, there's just all these wonderful games and, and, and effects that happen in this music, which kind of, which kind of go away or, or become less important, less uh, uh, emphasized. Uh, you know, later in the history of Western music, and I think a lot of the specific things that happen are are actually things that composers today are interested in, or or can be directly inspired by in a way that maybe, although I might love a piece of Schubert, might less directly inform what I'm doing. You also mentioned that all three of these important records. I don't know if this applies to this one. We'll find out, but showed you something was possible. What does that look like with with this particular record? Yeah, well, I mean, I think this is the only record among the three I picked that... I, well, I'll just say I, I think all three share something with filters, um, which I did think about a bit. But I think this one shares a kind of something on the surface level, which is that it's long durational. It's something we experience over a long period of time. There's not a lot of change throughout. I mean, when I think about the original, what was this work actually designed for in society? You know, it was designed to be, you were in a giant cathedral um, and you were there for a very, very long time on a Sunday experiencing the mass. Mm. And this music would have washed over you. I mean, I, I'm sure many of your listeners will have had that experience at, you know, some some English cathedral or, or other, but, right. um, yeah, sure. uh, uh, you know, imagine we're, we're there hearing this music for, for hours as part of a service. And, and so I, I do think, you know, I, I put my filters in a church and there's this kind of quasi religious or at least, um, uh, what's the word anyway? Uh, yeah, a, a kind of experience like that. Yeah. Um, that this shares with filters. So it definitely showed me that, you know, I, I didn't think of myself as, I've never, I hadn't until I think I heard this, thought of myself as someone who would write music that existed in long time spans, that you kind of like let wash over you, that, you know, uh, of that sort of nature, um, where you sort of lose a sense of time and space. And uh, this music does that, and I was, I, I, wasn't I don't think I was someone who was super drawn to that those sorts of musical experiences until I heard this I was like oh oh crap like that actually can be a truly truly amazing thing Okay, Philip, let's go to your second important record. Which one do you want to go for now? Let's do the Rand Lake. Cool, nice one. So, Painted Rhythms, the complete Rand Lake. Why is this one important to you? Give me a little introduction. So, I mean, uh, I, I studied with Rand for a couple of years um, at the New England Conservatory. And, I mean, I, I, I'll just say I think Rand is one of the great under-recognized pianists, you know, of our time or... You know, of the last few generations. The basic thing that he showed me that was possible is just the range of color 
on the instrument is beyond what I think I've heard any pianist do of any style ever. Mm. <laughs> it's not just jazz piano. I mean, that comes from a number of different things. I mean, it comes from his variety of attack. It comes from his use of the pedal and dynamics. The way he will strike one note very loudly and then another note quietly after or another set of notes quietly after that, which will then sort of blend together in this way that only exists on the piano. There's this quote of Morton Feldman, the composer, who said, like, you know, the, I'm going to butcher the quote, or I actually don't really know the quote, so I will just paraphrase <laughs> the quote and say the point. But basically, orchestras don't have sustained pedals. Only pianos have sustained pedals. So, you know, Rand's ability to sort of take that simple mechanism on the piano and create so much wonderful color and sort of like almost confusion to where the sound is coming from and what note is what and which note is resonating from where. Mm. Um, I just find that to be so beautiful and wonderful. To, to think of one person at one instrument creating this much sound and color. Um, and I definitely tried to do that in filters because when I, you know, I play those sort of, that highest and lowest note of the material, that kind of outer stream, is always a bit louder mm. uh, than the inner music. And, and, and I always want those pitches, and there's a fewer of them than the inner ones, but it kind of all evens out in the end and you get this blend. And I think I was definitely inspired by Ran in that sense. Yeah, just the, his touch on the piano, you know, from, from tracks like uh, Smoke Gets In Your Eyes particularly that ninth track. I think you really get that. Was there a reason for picking this particular record, Painted Rhythms, the complete Ram Blake as a demonstration of what Ram Blake can do or does? Yeah, I mean, I, I could have picked other ones. This is one that, like I said before, I, for whatever reason, keep coming back to it. I mean, there, there's there's another couple of records of his. They're duos with a from the 1960s with a singer named Gene Lee, which are absolutely astonishing. But, you know, for me as a pianist, hearing Rand Solo do his thing with these tunes, which I have known for years, you know, there's, there's jazz standards and Duke Ellington songs and Ray mm. Charles and Scott Joplin um, and a couple of other weird bits and things on here. These are, these are melodies that I know that sort of mean something to me outside of this record and when Ran transforms them that adds a whole other sort of layer uh, when you know these tunes so that that's part of it as well um, you know Ran has great records where he's playing originals and things like that but hearing him transform these standards these these tunes that we all know I mean I'm not sure how much listeners will know all of these tunes, but they'll certainly know the last three tracks, which are it's three short versions of Maple Leaf Rag, which are just completely bizarre and like, <laughs> um, you know, like uh, some sort of weird expressionist version of uh, of Maple Leaf Rag. So, yeah, I, I think that's that's one reason I was drawn to it. I, I also think it's just ran at his at his like at his sort of creative peak. Like mm. it doesn't get better than this. Um, I mean, I've. I can't say I've heard everything Rand's put out, but I, I, I know a lot of his, his work, and this is, this is up there for sure. Were you aware of Rand before coming to study with him? Only tangentially. He's, he's like a name that people know, but mm. for whatever reason, they kind of 
don't get around to checking him out a lot of the time. Mm. Um, but there is definitely a sort of, I don't know, there, a, a lot of pianists go to New England Conservatory. A lot of sort of jazz pianists in the States end up going to NEC and spending some time with Rand. It's kind of a thing. Uh, right. And there's a there's a lot of us out here who are kind of Rand Blake worship worshipers, um, and he's he's influenced and taught a lot of people, even if his music uh, isn't as widely known. So his you know his his he's in there with a lot of other stuff you're hearing, even if you don't know it. Oh, that's cool. Um, nice. Yeah. And um, what was he like as a teacher? You know, he talked about the impression I guess he left on you as a, a player, but yeah, what was it like actually studying with him? Well, Rand actually has a has a pretty strict methodology for his teaching, and um, he has a book which you can get, which talks about this, called the Primacy of the Ear. Um, but Rand's basically what studying with Rand looks like. He makes these things called oral cocktails, and um, <laughs> basically, there it's basically a, a mixtape. That's basically all it is. Um, it's a it's a set of recordings that he's checking out right now and it'll vary from Billie Holiday to Stevie Wonder to Stan Kenton to you know just the things he's into uh, to Oliver Messiaen you know whatever and it's usually about an hour of music and what he says to do is basically put this on you're listening listening to it constantly uh, this kind of has some resonance with what I was saying about how, how there's different modes of listening to filters. Mm. He wants you to listen to it, you know, closely. He wants you to listen to it as you're going to sleep. He wants you to listen to it while you're cooking. He wants you to listen to it sort of so it's actively and passively going into your mind. And then, um, and he usually, when you're studying with him, he picks the same, he wants you to be listening to the same thing that he's doing this with himself. You know, for, right. right. Uh, so you're kind of living in his world, and uh, there's a, there's a little sign on his door when you're leaving his house after a lesson that says, "Don't forget your oral cocktail" with a little martini glass picture. <laughs> you know, it's just. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and then what 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 he wants you to do is basically completely internalize and embody the melodies. He's not interested in. Well, he's interested in whatever sticks, but he doesn't mm. want you to sort of transcribe the the arrangement and the background and everything. He's all about melody. It's melody, 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 uh, melodic memory and ear training, so that you can really master the exact timing and phrases, phrasing of whatever performance of you know Billie Holiday on Deep Song or Stevie Wonder on You and I or wh whatever it is. And um, it's often vocalists. He's very interested in vocalists and how they phrase, and you know the micro timings of that, and the, and, and the pitches they choose, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so you embody that. You learn it, you know, as close as you can get it to the recording. And then he wants you to basically contextualize that in your own creation. Basically recompose it. So you know that can that can have to do with reharmonizing or redoing the arrangement completely sort of reimagining the context that this melody fits in and you know that should it should be pretty clear that that's what he's doing with all these sort of standards and and pieces on on this record i mean sometimes the original harmony will be there a little bit but um it will go it will go somewhere else so that's what he has you do and then studying with him is basically he critiques sort of how accurately you got the melody and and then sort of gives you some advice for your recomposition. And that's basically what studying with him is. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, has that... Well, firstly, this may be an obvious question, but have you felt that have a imprint up 
upon the way that you interact with, say, composing and playing with your instrument? Certainly. I mean, I'm not necessarily someone who the main thing that I do is reinterpret jazz standards. Mm. Um, and there's more ways to do that than merely the way that that I just described. But I think that, yeah, I think that certainly left an impression on me. Just even the experience of, of being sort of forced to create under that limitation, you know, that always that always is a generative thing to create a, a limitation and then have to be creative under it. It's mm. a rather it's a rather unusual one to say here's this melody that you sort of internalize in this very precise way and then you compose around it. You know, I, I think that I, I I don't know if I can speak directly to it, but I, I think that that I that that definitely inspired you know new thoughts and new ideas for me while I was doing that and and probably continues to. You've cited a couple of pieces already that kind of jut out, I guess, from this record. I mean, do you have something that you consider a favorite on Painted Rhythms? I think Smoke Gets In Your Eyes is probably my one favorite. This is sort of Rand's bread and butter when he, he takes, um, you know, Great American Songbook, show tunes, jazz standard, whatever you want to call it, and he takes it, it's kind of tempo de Rand, sort of. It's this <laughs> slow, pulsing thing in the left hand with this kind of, I don't want to call it muddy because that sounds bad, but it's like, what is it? It's like this kind of indescribable <laughs> thing that he does in his left hand that I've tried to replicate. Trust me, I have tried and I, I, I have not <laughs> achieved it. And you might think, well, it's just that amazing piano he's playing on and it's the, those beautiful microphones. And no, because I've heard him do it at his house where he has a you know, less than great piano that's often out of tune and and he does it there too. So wow. uh, that's kind of like that's like the Rand Blake thing that, that, that Smoke Gets In Your Eyes track and you know that has a special place in, in my heart I, I'll say actually. So that's kind of my favorite my favorite track I think. Okay, Philip, let's go to your final important yeah. record. So yeah, tell me the name of it and a little bit as to why it's important to you too. Yeah, so this is um, a group called the Claudia Quintet, which is um, not so much active anymore, led by the, the drummer and composer John Hollenbeck. It's a funny quintet. It's got vibraphone, accordion, uh, bass and drums, and clarinet, occasionally saxophone, but usually clarinet. Um, and the record is called I, Claudia, I, Claudia. Yeah, this music is like, it really makes me smile. <laughs> um, it's like, I, I wouldn't call it funny music, but it's like, oh yeah, that's a really good idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Like for all sure. the time, like <laughs> to have, to, to, to do that formally, musically, compositionally, whatever, w often with these instruments, it's like wow that's just 
how did you think of that? Like, yeah, and I, I, yeah. I think of that. I have that experience constantly when I'm listening to, to Claudia Quintet. There's often a really wonderful balance of elements, uh, you know, the, the of, of kind of strange things happening that are unexpected versus things that are kind of entirely predictable and inevitable. Things that are sort of hard to follow and confusing versus things that just fit into a nice groove and kind of carry on and feel nice and comfortable. Yeah, and I just love the way these pieces all develop. I think mm. I think uh, Hollenbeck is a genius of like sort of compositional and formal development uh, through the sections as the material moves from one thing to another um, and changes over time. So he, he's a big inspiration for definitely me and I'll say a, a lot of other sort of jazz adjacent improviser composers in my scene. Uh, he's definitely a, a, a figure that, that people turn to. And with this one as well, what was it that this record of John Hollenbeck generally showed was possible to you? Yeah, so this is a case of, I mentioned earlier that I often use loops, but not to feature the loop. And I think this is something that he does so well on this on this record. There's many loops in this music, but it's not mm. loop music, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's quite hard to achieve, actually. Um, because I think uh, many, many times people will use loops and it can feel very tired or stuck or when the loop changes, it feels a bit too, well, the loop changed. I got it. Like nothing happened (laughs) (laughs) or it was just a bit too on the nose or something. Um, But he seems to have somehow, he always has a way of solving that problem through the way things develop or transform or the way oftentimes one thing he's shown me that's possible is you know it's quintet so maybe two or three instruments are looping something or looping and developing something and the other ones are doing something else Mm. which may be written out over the loop or may be written out not over the loop so you know they may have a melody that they play in their own time yes. and you know the other musicians just know when they get to that ending point then it goes on so he he just has these simple formal creative ways of sort of dealing with that that I that I find wonderful and I another thing that I love is how things are composed and then these these blossoming spaces emerge for soloists <laughs> to do their thing and he's really written for the individual musicians, you know, Chris Speed on, on clarinet and sax and Ted Reichman on vibraphone, particularly, I mean, the others, I should mention Matt Moran on, uh, sorry, Ted Reichman on accordion, Matt Moran on vibraphone and Drew Gress on bass. But, you know, the, the, the space he leaves for solos, he really lets these guys, like, their personality show through and he, he's set up spaces for them to improvise in that just kind of like the right combination of very specific and very open Hmm. which is very hard to achieve as a sort of composer for improvisers often you know to to figure out the right amount of detail the right kind of detail the right amount of stuff going on for someone to fit into and uh, all of that just feels very natural and easy in this music and then you're like oh well that's not that hard and then you go try it and you're like oh (laughs) crap (laughs) Yeah. How did you first discover Claudia Quintet? Oh, God. I mean, he's, like I said, he's kind of, uh, he's a a guy that people look up to in the scene. I mean, I'm sure a friend 
you know, said, have you heard this at some point? Mm. Um, actually, I'm quite sure that's how it happened. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, once I, once I heard, I think this was the first record I, I heard, which is probably why, maybe that's why things are important to you, you know, because they're just the first thing you hear that of a <laughs> yeah. certain kind of thing, you know, as <laughs> yeah, simple as sure. that. Because there's other records of, of, of the Claudio Quintet that I might even like more than this one, but this is the one that's important to me because you know I, I can remember the the impressions that this sort of aesthetic and, and this approach to, to writing and playing uh, first left on me because it was the first one I heard of the group yeah for sure have you seen them live as well I haven't because you know they, they kind of well I, I don't know exactly when they stop performing um, or, or exactly what the plans are for the group, but I, I haven't seen them live. I've watched a good amount of you know live YouTube videos. There's there's a good amount of uh, live performances from mm. you know Euro- European festivals and things like that, and uh, that's always fun to see because they can stretch out a bit further on the tunes, and sometimes they improvise transitions between the songs, um, which doesn't as much happen on the record, um, and those are often pr- pretty cool, pretty enjoyable. Uh, hmm. But yeah, I haven't seen him actually live. Would love to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask. You've answered it there, but whether or not there's definitely a kind of limberness in these songs where you're like, that's that can be totally exploited in a totally different context. Um, mm-hmm. I should say, actually, the opening track. You talk about the him being a genius of kind of composition and structuring these pieces. The fact that that's in two distinct parts, which kind of could feel unrelated because you know they the whole thing kind of breaks down and then builds back up on a completely right. different plane but so, even now i'm you know i've only listened to this a handful of times there's such a lovely synchronicity between those two elements or synergy rather between the two like the opening bit and the second bit there's lots of moments where i'm like oh that's lovely. <laughs> yeah, well, that's actually a track I, I got together with a friend who's also into this music, and we actually transcribed what's going on and sort of mapped oh, out wow. the formal stuff. And it's pretty genius because he, he the the opening section is sort of in this um, irregular or odd number of beats cycle. Hmm. Um, I forget exactly how many bars of four, and then there's a bar of seven or something like that. So it doesn't quite line up, and it feels a little bit irregular. And there's this, you know, these patterns are written to fit into that. And then you get this moment where the drums fade out, and and the the accordion and clarinet just sort of circle around these two pitches, which is like. It's genius because it's like, of, of course it makes sense and flows naturally out of what's happening, but who would think to do that? <laughs> um, right? Yeah. And it, but it so naturally arrives there. And he's also, he uses the, um, it's actually a studio fade out, if you listen closely, of, of the drums, uh, which, is, which is a pretty cool uh, huh. decision. Nice. And then when everything comes back in, it's actually very much the same material as the beginning, but it's all in a regular 4-4 time now. Oh wow! Right. Okay. And he then he actually adds some 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 chords which weren't there before, and the bass line changes a little bit to fit into the four and gets a lot simpler actually. So the music actually gets basically less complex. It's kind of almost a reduction of what we had before, um, and the 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 drum groove gets much more simplified we get a regular snare drum hit that is easy to follow. So it's kind of like the same music but made into something that's easier to follow and 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 grooves in a more expected way 
So that's a perfect, I'm glad you, you mentioned that, because that's a perfect example of how he's, you know, there's actually very little written on the page to mm. produce this six and a half minute track, but it makes so much sense that it should last for this long. Why did you end up transcribing it? Um, well, you know, I, I think there's a lot of lessons in this music as a, as a composer and as an improviser. Um, and uh, a friend of mine and I were, were both into it, talking about how much we liked it, and we thought, why don't we actually take a closer look at what's going on here? Um, I, actually, specifically, I, I was feeling, in some of the stuff I was writing, a bit dissatisfied or at a loss for like knowing when to move on to what sections in my pieces mm. for improvisers. How do I know how long something should be? How do I know when what material should come back? And of course, like that's an age-old problem for composers. Uh, yeah. But I thought, well, Hollenbeck is someone who's definitely figured that out in in the context of his music, which is also you know for improv yeah, for improvisers. Let's take a closer look at this and see what he does. Um, so that that was kind of the the impetus for it. But you know, as we dug into it, we we started learning learning more things too that we didn't even sort of anticipate and yeah we have we have plans to to get through some other some other pieces on the record or, or other ones too because I, I still think i have lessons to learn from this music that i've yet to uncrack wicked and do you have a favorite track um i really like that opening track that we've talked about i also like the one that's sort of um it's sort of it's sort of like a, a, a West African, you know, twelve eight thing. Um, it, it must be the fifth track, I think. Yeah. Ottawa. Uh, again, like very little on the page, but the elements move on, like kind of just at the right time and just in the right way. Philip, I have one more question for you, which is about yeah. how you tend to buy music. Like, how does music tend to come into your life? What kind of formats? Where do you go? Yeah, kind of let me into that a bit. I'm glad you asked that. Um, I I buy music on Bandcamp as much as I can, or you know, whenever it's available, and particularly when it's something that you know is is by an artist who's pretty clearly self-funding their work and uh you know directly sort of going to benefit from the purchase of it uh, mm. which is probably most of the things i'm interested in listening to i will buy it on bandcamp as much as possible um, i mean i also listen to music on apple music i have almost a terabyte and a half of music from my life that i've you know been putting on from my dad's <laughs> cd collection to various things over the years so i do i do have my music sort of in itunes and on my on my phone as downloads like that and i will stream music on apple music but i try to buy as much as possible on on, on bandcamp and I, I hope that people do the same same with my work this is a whole other 
can of worms, which you may not want to get into. Yeah, but, yeah, um, I figured it might be. Yeah, but um, but I, I have been. It's uh, worth it's worth saying I have been involved um, in some some music worker uh, labor organizing over the past couple of years with a group called the Music Workers Alliance here in the states. Um, you know, which I, I sit on the steering committee of that, and I'm, and I'm involved in a lot of the stuff we do. And one of the main initiatives we've been working on is is something we call economic justice in the digital domain. The project, largely speaking, is you know how can we make make it possible to make recordings more sustainable? Because you know, it, as as I'm sure most most of your listeners know, it, it costs thousands of dollars, even sometimes tens of thousands of dollars, to produce a recording. And it is almost a guarantee that we will not make that money back mm. on the sale or streaming of that recording. The reasons for that are complicated, and what we need to do about it are complicated, and it's not as simple as, well, let's just not use the streaming services, or let's just do this, or let's just do that. Sure. Um, but uh, it's, definitely, it's definitely a topic that I've spent way too much time thinking about in the last couple of years. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, but you know, basic thing: buy your music on Bandcamp as much as you can. Uh, most of that money goes directly to the artist. Um, it costs them more than you can imagine to produce. In our current environment, that's probably the best we can do. Awesome! Thank you for bringing that in at the end, Philip. That's great, and thank you as well for talking about. I mean, your three records, but also filters. Like I told you before, I've been busting to speak to you about that record, so it's a real pleasure to be able to do that. So yeah, thank you very much. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate it. And to everyone listening, see you next time. Goodbye.